Welcome. You are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded, ancestral, and traditional Muskegon territory in Vancouver. I am your host, Sada Unju, and I have a wonderful show for you today. We have two shoutouts, and then we have Phoebe's review of The Holy Game, which will be followed by my interview with Esther Rosenberg about the East Side Art Society. And then afterwards, we have Eva's review of the DOA at the rickshaw. It might not sound like a lot, but believe me, it is a lot of content and I'm really excited for you to hear it. Also, during Eva's review, uh, Eva plays two songs of the DOA. So if you want to hear some music, make sure you stay tuned for that at the end of the show too so i'm not gonna ramble on a lot <laughs> so let's just kick it off with our shout outs that eva and dion very kindly did for us and then you know afterwards i'm not gonna pop back in just enjoy all of the content i will see you at the very end of the show enjoy hey filmmakers the Whistler Film Festival is open the call for applications for the ninth edition of the Indigenous Filmmaker Fellowship, designed to advance Indigenous Canadian talent by focusing on strengthening and developing short-form film concepts or web series and the skills of its creators. Six emerging filmmakers will be chosen for the six-month program beginning in October and will gain first-hand experience in the world of scripted storytelling through mentorship from filmmakers, broadcasters, and industry leaders. If you are First Nations, Métis, or Inuit from Canada, the Whistler Film Festival wants your submission of a short script in any genre. The deadline for this fellowship submission is August 31st, 2021. If you want to submit your application or get more info, please visit whistlerfilmfestival.com. Hey everyone, this is Dion, and today I'm going to give a shout out to the film The Winter Lake, and it is a directorial debut feature film by Phil Sheeran. It has quite a talented cast, including Emma Mackey from Sex Education on Netflix, Anson Boone from Crawl, and also from 1917, Charlie Murphy from Peaky Blinders, for example, and many more. And the story is about Anson Boone's character Tom as a teenage boy in the Irish countryside farmhouse, and he finds a washed-up infant skeleton in the lake and it's a thriller and he meets uh, his neighbor Holly who is played by Emma Mackey and yeah it's just a really interesting thriller and also an exploration of family dynamics and dark coming of age story. It is available now to stream on Amazon Prime and Google Play. So yeah check it out. The Winter Lake by Phil Sharon. This is Dion for the Arts Report. Thanks for your attention. Peace out. Hello everyone, this is Phoebe. Welcome to my segment. Um, this is actually the first review I've done for the Arts Report. Very exciting. 
you've come on an exciting day. Um, usually I do some form of interview or conversation, so this is the first time it's going to be just my voice. <laughs> Yay. Um, yeah, so today I'm reviewing a documentary that feels a little off theme for me. And by that, I just mean I feel like I'm not naturally inclined to find this topic interesting. Uh, but I was so intrigued when I first saw the description. And so here we are. That's enough preamble. Did you know that there is a football World Cup exclusively for priests? Yeah, I didn't. Football is in soccer, um, and it's called the Clericus Cup, and I had never heard of it. Um, I probably wouldn't be drawn to review a documentary about football um, because of, I don't know, I don't know, personal preference. Um, but I also hadn't really ever seen a documentary about real-life seminarians or priests in training. Um, so I think the fact that I found the topic surprising is what really caught my eye. But yeah, that's the focus of today. Um, and so I am going to interject now just to say that this documentary and this review is very much about the Catholic Church. Um, and as an institution, the Catholic Church has done a great deal of harm which the documentary does get into, and I'll talk more about later, but yeah, I also want to mention it now, at the start, um, especially in light of the news of the graves found at many former residential school grounds, and then also recently the attacks on Tbilisi and LGBT journalists and activist spaces. Um, so yeah, if you're listening and have any personal pain associated with the Catholic Church, I consider this your trigger warning. But yeah, to get into it, I should probably remember to mention the name. I always feel like I forget important details like that. Um, but yeah, the the name and the di the directors. This documentary is called The Holy Game, and it launched, I believe, on the yeah the twenty eighth of June. Um, and it's by Canadian director Brent Hodge. Um, my initial impression, I I thought it was thought provoking. It was the first adjective I'd use. I am really glad I watched it, and I feel like that that adjective is kind of thought-provoking, is thrown around a lot, is a very sort of empty word. Um, but what I mean is it covered a lot of big themes and a lot of really new information for me. I've never seen videos of priests talking when they're off duty, if that makes sense, like outside of a church setting, um, just as guys explaining their views on life and reasons for choosing to become priests. I'd never seen that before. And I always like hearing other people's perspectives on life. And I think it's valuable to understand the decisions of others, especially in their own words. And so I found this documentary humanized something that I tend to think of only as a large institution. Um, so it was new and thought-provoking, yeah. From a filmmaking perspective, it was gorgeously shot. You know, they, they film in Rome, in Portugal, and they have fun football montages and gorgeous European streets and guys on Vespers and grand, quite ceremonial church clothing? Uniforms? Yeah, there's, there's probably a lot of official church terminology that I'm missing out on, but I'm sure you'll forgive me. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of... Uh, grand opera music that is setting a dramatic tone and it's very exciting and 
basically, yeah, pleasing, pleasing aesthetic content um, all around. So it's very nice to watch. It's enjoyable to sort of experience the shots. Um, I also found it interesting how it was structured and that it doesn't really follow a plot in the traditional sense. Like, I mean, the the, tour- the football tournament's rounds, like the quarterfinals and semifinals, do give the documentary, like, sections. Um, but in terms of the flow of the story, I suppose, I found it interesting that instead of developing a, a plot, they focus on different emotional aspects within this one topic. Yeah, so instead of instead of progressing, it kind of builds, if you understand the distinction I'm trying to make. Yeah, which I, I liked. It was kind of novel. Um, and it starts out lighter, and they, they show the day-to-day of a priest in training in, in school, basically, um, which was fun. And then it also goes on towards more heavier topics um, and personal questions around trust and sacrifice and family and there's there's this one bit where this is kind of a spoiler but it also might make you want to watch it so I'll mention it Uh, there's a bit where one of the priests that has been uh, a character for some time is kind of halfway through outed to have a a secret family and, and two kids uh, which is very scandalous for a priest. Um, but instead of focusing on, on the timeline of the events around it or the, the facts or anything, it it really focuses more on the priest's emotions around it and he talks about obligation and, and love, which basically I just found interesting to hear because I've never really heard an insider perspective on that part of becoming a priest and and sacrificing something for... A greater belief. I don't know. It was interesting. Um, yeah. I was also curious to see when I was watching if they were going to avoid, um, to, to use euphemistic terms, the, the negative reputation of the Catholic Church. And um, I do, in a rather heavy sense, mean in terms of the pedophilia and child abuse that has come out about the Catholic Church. Um, but they they did address it, actually eventually and they they didn't skirt around the issue um and they they talk a bit about the cover-ups and the structural issues to do with that which i was glad to see um because i'm not sure i think i would have been suspicious if they hadn't and i don't know why but yeah so that's that's in there and i wanted to mention that they get into that as as they build i suppose but yeah if i kind of take (laughs) what i've mentioned so far it doesn't really sound like this documentary is about football um, even though the the tournament is driving the whole thing, um, but I think the reasons I enjoyed and would recommend watching this documentary are for the non sport related insights. Um, and then don't get me wrong, like the the tournament's fun and it gives like a a fun sort of quirky lighter thing to tie it all together. But to end this, I think I want to just read out one of the notes that I took while watching, um, just because I, I like how I've put it in shorthand instead of unpacking it. Um, I wrote, as the header was themes, and then I kind of, I added words as, as I watched, but uh, so it goes themes, and then family, security, love, trust, sacrifice, unity, marriage, and happiness. And that's what I'd say it's about pretty well, to be honest. 
Um, yeah, so that's that. To recap, it's called The Holy Game. It is available to watch now on Crave in Canada and on uh, Gravitas globally, I believe. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. Enjoy the weather. Do not forget to wear sunblock. Um, yeah, that's all from me. Bye. This Quarter Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theatre, Discorder lives. Your favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theatre. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheatre.com. Looking to get a reliable and affordable used bike? Need a repair or service to your current ride? Come to the Bike Kitchen, UBC's full-service community bike shop, located in room 36 of the UBC Life Building. Our hours are Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. If you buy a bike from us, bring it back when you're done using it, and we'll give you half of your money back, as long as you took care of it. If it needs repairs, we'll split the cost with you. Yep, you heard us right. We'll give you crisp dollar bills for half the original price of any used bike that you buy from us, minus the cost of repairs. For more information about our buyback policy and to stay up to date on any COVID-19 inspired changes, find us online at thebikekitchen.com. Hello everyone, I have Esther Rosenberg with me today and we're going to be talking about the Eastside Art Society. Um, hi Esther, welcome, thank you for joining me. Hi Sarah, great to be here, really excited. <laughs> you. So you are the Artistic and Executive Director of Eastside Art Society, which used to be the Eastside Culture Crawl Society, so you recently had a name change. Um, so we'll, I'll start off by asking why this uh, name change happened. Sure. Well, I think for many of your listeners out there, they know about the Eastside Culture Crawl. It's become quite the, the, the large visual arts craft and design festival. And this, we are, this year we're celebrating 25 years, which is really a milestone. Mm -hmm. It is a case of build it and they will come. And, you know, for some people, they think that we're changing the name of the Eastside Culture Crawl Festival. And just to put it out there, we are not. <laughs> we're not going to lose our crow and we're not going to, you know, you lose the Culture Crawl Festival or what a lot of people affectionately call the crawl. Mm -hmm. So that that is a fixture of our society and will always be front and center. So um, we decided on a name change so that we could secure funding for some of the other arts initiatives, which we have been undertaking over the years. Uh, but they kind of get lost under the Eastside Culture Crawl Festival because, of course, that's become so iconic and so big yeah. and, and recognizable. Uh, we do do and have been undertaking other initiatives kind of quietly behind the scenes. A lot of it related to the preservation and promotion and development of, of space, which, mm -hmm. of course, is critical to the survival of the Eastside Culture Crawl. And uh, so we have to come up with the 
uh, a new name for the society that is reflective of some of the other activities, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, But culture crawl is staying. That's good. That's great to hear. Yeah, I was going to ask that because um, last year I attended uh, the crawl and it was amazing. And I actually, even though I've been here for like four years, I recently found out about the Eastside Culture Crawl. And so I was really excited. And then, yeah, I don't want it to go away. I want to attend again. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. We were, we were able to pull it off during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we were quite happy that at least some of the artists were able to exhibit. Clearly it was toned down and geared down because of the health and safety regulations. And we did consult with Coastal Health and City of Vancouver health officials. And we were able to hold what I would call a very safe culture crawl event last year. Mm-hmm. And, but from that, we also learned a lot of things. And we learned that there are some things that we could be doing differently and I don't think we would have realized that without having been put in the place of a pandemic that you know has gravely impacted a a, a lot of our a lot of us and you know in the arts community it, it it has gravely impacted a lot of visual artists for sure yeah yeah definitely has the EAS um done anything in any events virtually this year well, we did, uh, our, because our major event is the, the culture crawl, so yeah. we did do that it, to some extent virtually, but also in person. We mm-hmm. did uh, establish a scheduler, and so people could come to the event if they had pre-booked an appointment. So mm-hmm. that, that worked really well in terms of ensuring that there were only the, you know, the correct number of people in any studio at any given time. We also did something that was quite unique because we adapted a feature that's generally used in real estate listings called Matterport. Mm-hmm. And a lot of artists did a 360 degree Um, scan of their studio space. And what's great about that particular software, although, you know, some of us did it better than others, because it's definitely (laughs) something that you have to (laughs) have to learn and a skill you have to acquire. And that only comes from practice, as we know, often with, you know, learning anything, you know, technically related. And but but it did work well, because what we were able to do with the 360 scan of the room is that you got this kind of sent this 3D picture of an artist studio and then you could kind of zoom into a specific artwork and you could give the details of that in terms of the title the size of it the scale you know all of those things and a lot of people really liked that and what we learned from offering that kind of virtual opportunity was that we started to get feedback from I know with my friends um, and people that I know that live in other parts of the world Mm -hmm. they went wow, we're in your studio now. And what we started to realize is that this now potentially is an opportunity that can reach outside of our physical boundaries. And as you know, and you will also hear about the Eastside Arts District, we are grounded in terms of our geography Mm-hmm. or bounded by our geography and that is intentional in for 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 many for many reasons but it um it actually expanded the culture crawl without having to 
compromise our boundaries or extend them in any way. So we're still very much rooted in the east side of Vancouver, but we're able to take the east side of Vancouver and all the creativity and all the art making that happens here and really, you know, take it across Canada, take it, you know, internationally. I got responses from Europe and I know others did. And so it really kind of opened up our eyes to other possibilities. We're still very much obviously going to be rooted in the open studio event, having people come, come in, experience, you know, the art making process, have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with artists, which is really, I think, you know, the key to the success of the culture mm -hmm. crawl is, is that sort of connection, that public engagement, that dialogue that happens between the artists and the public. So never gonna lose sight of that. And, but realize that we can just kind of, you know, add a few more elements yeah. to it and some other people can experience and who knows, maybe they'll wanna come to Vancouver and experience it firsthand. Exactly. That would be wonderful. I think, I feel like this is a good transition into my next question, which is about the Eastside Arts District. So I read that the EAS is planning on building a designated Eastside Arts District that's going to be funded by a grant from the Vancouver Foundation. And so I feel like the Arts District could be a really good pull into Vancouver. And I was going to ask, would you like to talk a little bit more about what the East Side Arts District, like the designated area would be like, what this kind of entails for um, people listening? Sure. Well, there's lots of facets to the Eastside Arts District. It's something that's been gestating and percolating with, with us here at what was the Culture Crawl Society, now the Eastside Arts Society, mm -hmm. for many, many years. And it's finally, I think, you know, starting to come to fruition. But by saying that, we're actually at the beginning stages of it. And we mm -hmm. see this more or less um, as a three-year planning process at this point, because you don't kind of snap your fingers yeah. and voila, you have an arts district. Although we do have a lot of elements that, that, that make for a really interesting in arts district. And one of the things that I wanna say is that when we talk about the arts district, we're not just referring to the, the, the visual arts discipline, mm -hmm. but we are referring to all artistic um, uh, disciplines. So music and dance and theater and performance spaces, all of, all of those things mm -hmm. is, is, is what we're considering. So, but we do see it as a, at the moment, more like a planning process and a, a developmental process mm -hmm. we we do want to involve a, and engage a lot of stakeholders and have conversations with them because we want all of that input we just don't want it to come from us and say you know it's defined like this and it's only this mm -hmm. uh, we know that there's a lot of artists in our community and there's a lot of great ideas and there's a lot of creativity that um, we want to tap into that and if we're going to develop this district we want it to be really super exciting and something that you know a lot of the arts groups and artists have contributed to the development of so in the first year i would say we're really looking at mapping as much mm -hmm. of the arts and cultural assets that we that we can and getting a sense of the you know the breadth of that like how many performing arts groups are there here how mm -hmm. many 
you know, choreographers are here, how many musicians are here. We know about the visual arts community because we've done a study on that. Um, and we kind of have a pretty good sense of that because we work with the visual artists, mm -hmm. but the, the artists in the other disciplines, you know, I have some sense of, but we need to map that out. So that's kind of one of the first steps. And then the second step is really then to connect with those artists and arts groups and get some sense about how they might envision this, you know, playing out. What do they see this as? How do they see this as, as being beneficial to them? We, of course, have some ideas in terms of what we think is going to make up an arts district, but we are definitely open to hearing other other people's opinions and suggestions and really ensuring that we capture the richness of what's in this area. So on some levels, there's what I would call the front end of the Eastside Arts District, which would be the, the public facing component of it. And that part of it is largely what the public is going to see. So hopefully at the end of three years, we have moved towards, if we get the funding to developing an interactive map and you know that has all the filters. So if you're looking for a piece of public art, you'll find it. Looking for a dance performance, you'll find it. You wanna, you wanna see what artists has an open studio that night you're in town for the weekend you'll find it all of those things and that's kind of the public facing part of it on the back end we see many other things that are happening that are I think less kind of glamorous or sexy mm -hmm. you could call it and that's where the kind of the hard work comes in and we really we recognize that um, through the study that the award-winning study that we did on the loss of artist production space mm -hmm. um, in 2019, that we are rapidly losing uh, artistic production space. And just actually in the last couple of months, we're, we're seeing a number of larger studios um, that are going to be closing down. So we are obviously concerned about the loss of space and it, the loss of space means the loss of the artistic, you know, contributions that are that are happening here. And this is really, I think, where, you know, the farm team is. This is where artistic production happens is right here in this area. And if you don't have and you don't support that component of it, you really then are missing a huge part of the spectrum in terms of, you know, you're not going to have anything to show in the private galleries or at the Vancouver Art Gallery if you don't have a place where artists can produce this the, 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 the work. And that goes with everything. That goes with music, that goes with dance, you know, all of the disciplines. And so the preservation, the promotion, and hopefully the development of space is something that we're looking at. And that, again, is work that's happening behind the scenes and not that interesting because it is about hopefully using some of the policy tools that are available and changing some of them so that we can ensure that space is not being lost and is actually being created. And then there's one more other component to it, and it is about, you know, looking at what kind of initiatives can we develop that mm -hmm. builds capacity for artists to continue um, to not just survive with their art practice, but thrive in their art practice. So that is something that, you know, we're, we're very concerned about. I, I really hate the, the stat that always comes out that says that artists are, you know, um, have the lowest income um, yeah. in terms of, you know, the various sectors that make up our Canadian economy. And so I'm hoping that, you know, with the excitement of an Eastside Arts District that 
um, that also builds um, builds capacity for for artists to continue to develop their 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 work. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That all sounds really good. Even the parts that you said weren't really exciting to me. They're really exciting to hear about. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so I also read that uh, one of the first steps in creating this district is the Create Arts Festival. Uh, and it's going to kick off in August 2021, so this August. Um, so what is this festival exactly? Would you mind talking about it? Sure, because it actually connects to the last thing I was talking about in terms of building capacity for artists. And so at the moment, it's we're just seeing it as a pilot festival because it's the first and it takes a long time to build. The culture crawl wasn't built in, you know, the first couple of years. It's taken 25 years to get to the point where it's been so successful. So the Create Festival is kind of a pilot festival at the moment. And it is really based on the premise that, you know, we want to build capacity for 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 artists. And so artists will be offering a, a, a workshop and the public can come in and get a taste of, you know, either ceramics or or printmaking, installations, collage. Um, just different kind of mediums that they could work with. And so they can come and get it's kind of like a taster, mm-hmm. I think you know, and so people can come and go, you know, I always wanted to do ceramics, but I wasn't sure. And then they can kind of get a sense of, hmm, I kind of might like this. And so, and then hopefully they'll, if they're that interested in it and they like it, they'll pursue it further. And all the artists will hopefully offer workshops later on, either in the year or in the spring next year. Yeah. So the Create Festival is really built on the on the premise that what 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 we started to see with the culture crawl is that people are so wanting to be engaged that they're now wanting to take it a step further. And the the, the public is really wanting to kind of get their hands mucky and they want to be involved and they want to try it and they want to say, can I do this? I'm kind of intrigued or I just want to know about the process. It's not to say that they're all going to become artists, but they really are intrigued about kind of just giving it a, a, a shot. So that's what the festival is about. Initially, we're going to be working uh, mostly with visual arts in the first couple of years, Mm -hmm. but we hope to expand that and, you know, perhaps offer uh, workshops in songwriting or in writing or in uh, playing guitar or um, movement or whatever. Um, So we do plan on expanding it into other other disciplines so that, you know, people can just sort of see a little bit of what goes into that particular art. Um, form. And if they're wanting to pursue it further, the artists that are offering those workshops will be offering something later on for them to connect with. And so, yeah, I hope it, I hope it works. It's um, in, in theory, it's working Um, in practice. Well, you never know what kind of hiccups we're going to encounter. But I feel like it's such a great idea because when it comes to arts, um, if you want to start doing something new, whether it be, for example, pottery or painting, the cost of the materials can really add up. And if you're a beginner, it seems like a waste to you because you don't know if you're even going to like it. So I feel like it's a great way to indulge people in it and help them see if they like it and if they want to pursue it. So, so. yeah. 
And, 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 you know, there are like Opus Frames, who's been a strong, you know, supporter of the culture crawl. Um, and now the Eastside Art Society, they, they do that, um, which is great. And it's kind of like even building off of what, what they're doing, except it's, it's, it's doing it in a more of a festival atmosphere. And then you can have people, you know, wandering through and just looking, and maybe they're not participating in the, in the workshop, but then they can look at what people are making. And that might excite people as well. So I think kind of putting it under a festival tent um, you know, creates a different ambiance. And we're hoping, as I said, this year it's a pilot, but we are envisioning, um, you know, food trucks and a beer garden. And, you know, we have dreams and plans that will elevate this, this, this event, but not for this year, <laughs> not, at that, not at that level. Um, yeah. And that was largely due to, we would have ramped it up a bit more, but because we weren't sure as to what was going to happen with COVID. Mm -hmm. And so our plans kind of kept shifting back and back and forth. So we, we had to make a decision to tone it down because we can't just pivot and secure, you know, a whole group of artists and then say to them, sorry, it's not happening. So we had to scale it back also because of COVID and the health and safety regulations, even though it's all looking really good now, when we were in the planning stages of this, that was not the case. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And so for the festival, how are the admissions? Is it um, free? Anyone can come in or do you need to get a festival pass? How is it going to work? Right. Well, this year it's going to operate differently from what we're envisioning it to, um, to look like in years to come. It will be more of a banded, like wristbanded event. Mm -hmm. And so you'd pay, you know, $10 to come in. Um, if you want to participate in workshops, um, there's a, there's a, it depends on whether it's an adult workshop or for kids only. Uh, so prices vary. I think for the adult workshop, it's $25, but all the materials are supplied and, and you will create some Thing within the hour and a half that you're working on with whatever material or whatever um, medium you're working in. So you will be able to create something and mm -hmm. walk away with that. And I believe that the children's, which is either 13 and under, is somewhere around $10. And then there's a free kind of public installation um, that people can come and contribute to and sort of like a day-long event. And um, yeah, so it's going to be working a little bit differently this year than what we're seeing into the future. Uh, people can walk around this year and just look at what other people are making. So we do invite people to come down to Grandview Woodland. Uh, the festival was actually designed to happen at Strathcona Park. So there was this connection between Strathcona Park and then Parker Street Studios, Murgatroyd, some of those um, mediums that are really that you can't necessarily move outdoors like glass blowing and some of the woodworking um, could 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 happen without people having to travel too far. Um, there's the Malk Art Studios, which will be doing the kids workshops on the on the Sunday. And uh, so strategically, we did have it located at Strathcona Park, but Strathcona Park is currently under uh, renovations. And so we were unable to locate it there. And so this year it is at Grandview Woodlands, but it should be back at Strathcona Park in the future. Okay, amazing. And where can people get more information about the Create Arts Festival and the Eastside Arts uh, Society in general? 
Sure. Well, we're just developing our new website. So I think it's up. <laughs> so I think it's eastsideartsociety.ca. Okay. And I think from there, you can kind of go to the various different festivals. Um, we still have culturecrawl.ca. Um, so you can still connect there. And I'm not sure whether it's the createartsfestival.ca. Um, but yeah, I would just go to the eastsideartsociety.ca. And I think from there, you can be led into the various uh, different programming that we that we have. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. It was great to learn more about both the AS and uh, the upcoming plans that you have. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for having me on. I really, really enjoyed this. When you join Balloon Club, we guarantee that you will be able to make a balloon poodle within the first day. Here at the UBC Ant Club, we just like to talk about ants and compare ant farms. Uh, it's really cool. Paperclip Club is all about, well, paperclips mostly. At Blah Club, you can blah blah, blah 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 blah. Explosions. There's only one club worth joining at UBC, and that's CITR 101.9 FM. We got free tickets to shows, whirly pops, professional help in all types of audio engineering, passes to festivals, crazy parties, live band swag. All types of crazy people. Our programming manager rides a motorcycle. There's freestyle rapping, Nardwar, the human serviette, the vinyl and record libraries, Discord or magazine, free studio recording, and it sure beats the hell out of Paperclip Club, which is a thing that I just made up because I work at CITR. So come check us out on the top floor of the Student Union Building. We got all types of crazy shit for you to do. Or check us out online at www.citr.ca. Nothing goes together better than live music and a beer. Or two. Or five. Wait a minute. An estimated 886,000 Canadians aged 15 and older abused or were dependent on alcohol in 2012. One in seven Canadians aged 15 years and older experienced verbal, emotional, and physical abuse as a result of another person's drinking. Make sure a fun night out doesn't ruin everyone else's, or your own. If you see yourself or someone you know slightly off-key, help everyone out and step in. After all, you want to be able to remember this show tomorrow morning. Hey everyone, I'm Eva Drowdy, and today I wanted to tell you about another awesome livestream performance at the Rickshaw. So on June 28th, I caught a show and Q&A from Vancouver punk rock legends DOA. The band was a huge name in the formation of Vancouver's punk scene, and remains local punk royalty today, really. In fact, they have been credited with really starting the subgenre of hardcore punk in Canada. The band had its origins with The Skulls, a group which was formed by Joey Keithley, otherwise known as Joey Shithead, in his hometown of Burnaby. And then The Skulls would go on to become DOA in 1978 with the onboarding of Randy Rampage on bass and Chuck Biscuits on drums. So that was the OG lineup of DOA, which looks a little different 40 years later, which now incorporates Patty Duddy on drums and Mike Hodsell on bass, while Joey remains on lead guitar and lead vocals. And when it comes to reviewing live shows, I feel like there's only so much you can really get from a play-by-play -play without just feeling frustrated that you weren't there. So I think today I'm going to start by playing you one of my favorite DOA songs that was on the bill that night. And then we'll come back for a little history lesson, show overview, and some song recommendations. And of course, some suggestions of upcoming rickshaw shows that you can actually hear for yourself instead of hearing me talk about. Alright, this is 2 Plus 2 by DOA.
So the story of DOA begins in 78 when their first EP, Disco Sucks, became wildly popular in the San Francisco Bay Area, particularly on college radio stations. This prompted a little tour down to California where the guys met Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys, a lifelong friend and collaborator with DOA, especially in the 90s. So the band's first years were absolutely electric. Only a year into their career, DOA was opening for the Clash at the Pacific Coliseum and launching a North American tour. And just as things were getting good, the band decided to play a fateful gig at our own UBC Student Union building. And to put it lightly, it was a tank. In response to this disastrous campus performance, Biscuits and Rampage both quit the band. Briefly. They were back in 1980 to record two more records, including one of their most iconic. It was called Hardcore 81. This LP has been suggested to be the first explicit mention of the emerging subgenre hardcore punk. But after this, Biscuits was done for good, and he left DOA to join a little old band called Black Flag. Joe replaced him with a former Skulls member, Wimpy Roy, and Rampage 2 was subbed out for a former Skull, Dimwit. Really good names. <laughs> Love the names. I dug through some old Discorder issues for mention of DOA because I knew that the band was heavily ingrained in the Vancouver underground scene back in that day, as well as being a household name around UBC. And I found several mentions of performances at the sub and student rallies, protests around town. But one piece that stuck out was the 96th issue of Discorder from 1991, entitled DOA, The Inevitable Tribute. The two-page spread was a collection of eulogistic memoirs from the community, who was priming for DOA's final show. Among the nostalgic fans were Nardwar the Human Serviette, who recalled a moment from his childhood when he was struck with fear at a Wendy's urinal after bumping into Joe Keithley. Another eye-catching tribute came from Randy Bachman of BTO, who referred to the group as Vancouver's big answer to the Sex Pistols. He also said he wished that he could arrange for a DOA day every year at the Commodore. It's a pretty cool artifact if you wanted to go back into the archives and have a read-through. They've got all the Discord issues stored away in the UBC library and online too at open.library.ubc.ca. Another cool archive available through the UBC library is their collection of old UBC publications, which I also dug through to find any documentation of this horrendous band-ruining performance at the sub. Now, I couldn't find any details about that. It's been pretty hush-hush. But in Volume 71, Issue 32 from January 27, 1989, there is mention of another contentious DOA performance at the sub. So at the beginning of the semester, there was to be a hike in tuition, which the students vehemently opposed. They'd put together an anti-tuition raise demonstration and had arranged for DOA to perform, except that the AMS, who was supposedly working in tandem with the students, banned the group from attending this rally for fear that the raucous band was too provocative and would incite students to storm the building. It's honestly not an unfounded fear. This ended up spurring quite the political backlash against the alma mater society, which was the focus of several future UBC articles. And as I mentioned earlier, DOA's lineup has morphed throughout the, their 40-plus year career, but the constant is Joe Keithley. Joe was actually a former student at UBC, and he was hoping to study labor law before he realized that the whole music thing could really take off. His story is pretty unusual, and his passions seem at first glance at odds with each other. Once a wholly seditious punk rocker whose trademark gig trick was to urinate all over his audience, the aptly named Joey Shithead has recently turned his focus to politics, hanging up his public indecency hat, for now at least, and he's running his first second term as Burnaby City Councilor. Running for public office is not new to Joe, surprisingly, who first ran in 1996 for the Green Party, then again four more times for both NDP and Green before finally being elected in 2018 to his current position as city councillor for the Green Party of Canada. The roots of activism and the desire for change run deep in Joe and in the ethos of DOA, and punk in general, 
From Joey's youthful ambitions in labor law to the numerous peace rallies, environmental events, and human rights protests that the band has headlined, as much as it might seem that the ethos of punk is to reject authority, that being a politician and punk are incongruous occupations, Joe wholeheartedly disagrees. In an interview with Post Media, he offers that besides being a lot of fun, great music, and crazy antics from all the performers, punk was a really political force from the start. This really resonates with me because I think what many punk naysayers are really rejecting is their false understanding of punk as an auditory teenage wasteland, thinking that the movement encourages mean-spirited hell-raising and anti-authoritarianism just for the sake of it. But it's so backwards and horribly unfair to the movement because anyone who may have lent into that branding are completely unpunk. It couldn't be summed up better than the band motto and Joe's personal slogan, talk minus action equals zero. At the core of it, a punk artist's content is their political platform. Using the 12 tracks on a record to speak against corporate greed, the sickness of society, and to promote human rights, that was DOA's campaign to mobilize a dissatisfied generation. They wanted them to form opinions and participate in change. And yeah, stir the pot a little bit. The apparent paradox between punk rock and holding a position of political authority is exactly what Joe Keithley attempts to explore in his upcoming documentary. It's called Something Better Change, which is a reference to DOA's debut album from the 1980 of the same name. The indie production reached its Kickstarter goal of 40k in just 10 days, which really speaks to the relevance DOA still holds in the community today. Featuring star-studded interviews with the likes of Chris Novoselic of Nirvana, Jello Biafra of Dead Kennedys, Black Flag's Henry Rawlings, Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, and more. The Vancouver Sun describes the mission of the doc as examining the relationship between hardcore punk rock's activist roots and working towards genuine social change. Something Better Change is set to be released in August of 2022, I believe, so keep an eye out for that. Okay, let's play one more song and then we'll come back to a little discussion about the performance and some things you can watch at the rickshaw. This next one's a song called World War III off of DOA's 1980 debut album, Something Better Change. Ah, what is that? 
switching gears into a review of the performance of the rickshaw, I was honestly thrilled with the evening. And it's not really surprising, especially if you've listened to some of my other rickshaw reviews over this past year through COVID. The rickshaw events, livestream ones, have just been fabulous. I've said it before and I'll say it again, but what I love is the effort put into production to kind of offset the disappointment of not being there in person. The rickshaw often incorporates humorous little skits. For example, at the DOA show, there was a post-gig clip of two awkward audience members golf clapping, looking around, anticipating a cue, and then unconvincingly asking, Encore? A super sweet perk of attending a livestream show was the 30-minute Q&A with Joe held by his drummer, Patty, where they discussed favorite childhood artists and the similarities between punk and politics, like we've been talking about, touring memories, and whether Joe and his new career has bent to the mainstream, or if rather, the mainstream has finally caught up to Joey Shedhead. It's a cool opportunity you don't typically get in a live show format. I think really highly of the Rickshaw's productions and how they've rose to the whole COVID problem especially. So if you want to catch any upcoming shows there, you can head to the website, but here are some events that caught my eye in particular. We've got the local post-punk group Actors, and that's streaming from August 6th to 8th. A post-hardcore band from New York City called Quicksand, which will actually be in person by October 12th, oh my gosh. And a loaded bill on October 14th with punk bands Anti-Flag, Dog Party, Grumpster, and Oxymorons. Alright, and lastly, some song recommendations. You've heard a couple already, but here are three that I dug from the set list. Firstly, a tune delivered in Clash-like cadence. It's called 2 Plus 2, you heard it way at the beginning. It sounded far different at the show, and I actually struggled to make out the words, but I could tell that it bopped, and it didn't really matter either way because the performance was fantastic. These three oldies, I'm sorry guys, they're absolutely smashing around on stage, and Mike Hodsell, who's the bass player, landing these super impressive Pete Townsend jackknife jumps. And one moment I audibly laughed at, where Mike kind of pretended to smack Joe in the face with his guitar. I really like the banter, I really like the showmanship. So that's, that's my first one, 2 plus 2. And then secondly, a track off the 1982 EP, Warren45. We just heard one called World War III, but the one that I like especially is called Liar for Hire. My interest was piqued during the performance by Joe's stellar opening shred on his scratched up raw wood Gibson SG, which is complete with duct tape to hold it together and various stickers, one of which I made out as an anti-LNG decal. 
Liar for Hire references Jerry Falwell, who I had to do some research on, but he was a conservative activist in the 80s and a televangelist for the Southern Baptist Church. He founded a couple Christian universities, and in 1979, a political organization called the Moral Majority, which is a right-wing movement that aimed to mobilize Republican voters towards traditional family values, opposing equal rights amendment, love that, the strategic arms limitation talks, abortion, and also opposing state acceptance of homosexuality. So anyways, as you can imagine, DOA didn't have a lot in common with this guy, and they wrote this song where they, in the recorded version, the last line can be heard backwards as, pardon my language, Jerry Falwell eats shit at the foot of the devil and loves it. So I thought that was quite funny uh, in the recorded version. Go take a look at that. And so yes, that was called Liar for Hire. And thirdly, I'll ramble less about this one, but it's called Just Got Back from the USA, which is an homage to an old Trooper song from 91, I believe. And the record it belongs to is DOA's 18th studio album, the 2020 LP called Treason, which is a takedown of the Trump administration. So that was my review of the Rickshaw show with DOA. It was really fabulous, and I would recommend checking out a bunch of their songs if you don't already know a whole, whole lot about the band. Um, go through those UBC and Discord or archives just for anything. They're really interesting. Uh, and yeah, check out the rickshaw. See what, what's upcoming shows you might want to attend. All right, that's it for me. Have a great day. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. I hope you enjoyed all of that content. I know it was one after the other, which I actually really enjoy because then I don't cut off the flow and you just get to hear everything, all of the reviews, the interviews, the shout outs. It's wonderful. But anyways, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I will be back with hopefully other people's uh content too by that i mean our correspondence i really like that today's show was so diverse we had shout outs from eva and dion a review from phoebe another review from eva it was so exciting and yeah hopefully next episode will be as diverse and even if it isn't, even if it's just me talking, I know it's going to be fun because I tend to stray away from what I'm saying and tell fun stories. At least I think they're fun. Anyways, <laughs> I shall <laughs> I shall leave you to it. Uh, make sure to check out our past episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and CITR.ca. And yeah, check out our social media. We're arts report citr on instagram citr underscore arts report on twitter and on facebook we are citr no we are arts report on citr 101.9 fm yes and with that it's my time to go i'll see you on the next show goodbye